Let's pray. Lord, you are our Father, and you do dwell in heaven, but you also dwell here on earth so that we can make requests to you for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done right here on earth, but not just in some general way, but specifically right here in Stevens County, right here in Chewila Evangelical Free Church, right here at each of our hearts. May your will be done this morning. And Lord, we do pray and remember that all of our daily needs and even many of our daily wants are met by you. That Lord, you do protect us from evil in ways that we don't even imagine, in ways that we don't see because you're just always there and we take it for granted or it's hidden and invisible And someday we will see all that you have done for us in keeping us from evil. And so God, now, as we talk some more about healthy churches, we do talk about your kingdom, Lord, that you will have a kingdom on earth and you have invited us to be part of that kingdom and to bring others into that kingdom. And so, Lord, we pray that we can not only have your kingdom in our heart as we live our daily lives, but we can show others and even tell others about it. So we lift these things up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, I kind of lost my place now. So I have a parable for you. And remember, parables are kind of like telling a story using some other illustrations. And you might remember that Jesus told us that we would become fishers of men. And so this parable that someone wrote is called the parable of the stained glass aquarium. There was once a small but dedicated group of fishermen. Every year they were very effective at catching fish. After a few years they were so successful at catching fish that they decided to build a small aquarium to feed the fish and to help them grow and reproduce. Well, after some years, the members felt their aquarium needed to be larger and more appealing to attract more fish. So they built a nicer aquarium of stained glass with the latest equipment and, of course, a water purifier. They also hired a professional fisherman to come in with special lures and highly skilled fishing techniques And the the job of the aquarium members was simply to herd the fish into the aquarium within reach of the master fisherman. After a few more years, the aquarium required more and more effort to keep it running, and so they needed more programs, programs like stained glass development, uh, programs like algae nutrition, and, of course, proper spawning rituals for young fish. Eventually, their time was spent completely on maintaining the aquarium, and new fish were rarely caught. Many decades later, the number of fish in the aquarium dwindled, and the aquarium had to be sold to a different species of wilder fish with shredded fins who looked and acted quite different, and the remaining fish swam away to another stained glass aquarium more like theirs from years past. Well, The question is, is there a better way to catch fish? 
Is there a better way for us in evangelism, in outreach, that we can effectively meet our neighbors, meet people around us, and we can introduce them to Jesus Christ? And so let me give you some statistics on how people have been led to Jesus. They asked 10,000 people, so a pretty significant sampling. What factor helped lead them to their trust in Jesus? Here's what the answers were. 1% said visitation. 2% said they came to Jesus through a special program. 3% walked into a church. 5% because a pastor talked to them. 5% in an evangelistic crusade. And 5% in a Bible class. So that's 21%, which is nothing, by the way, to sneeze at. It's nothing to say, oh, look, see, isn't that terrible? You know, there are some good statistics. We spend hundreds of thousands, probably millions of dollars sending missionaries overseas who have maybe even less results than that. But here's what I want you to notice in yellow. 79% of people said, I came to know Jesus Christ because of the influence of a friend or relative. So look at those stats and tell me, which way do you think would be the most effective way? What would we want to choose? Not that we would eliminate the others, but look, when we think about evangelism, we think of friends and relatives that have led us there. But when I think about me doing evangelism, I, oh man, I might offend someone or I might not know what to say. So we are intimidated because of these fears. See, we don't see outreach as something that we do naturally, something that's a part of our life. It's often a separate little program. It's a separate activity. And then, boy, I'm glad that's over. I can live my normal life without all this stress. And so, We don't see outreach as something that we can do comfortably and naturally. However, relationships are the most natural and effective means of outreach. Cultivating relationships is something every Christian can do to pursue our calling to fulfill the Great Commission. Wouldn't we all agree? Jesus said clearly in Matthew 28, the last part of the chapter, some of his final words was go out, you know, and make disciples. And yet, It's so intimidating. It's so fearful. We aren't sure how to do it. We're not sure where to do it. Sometimes we're struggling and feeling guilty and defeated. Well, I want to look at what this natural outreach look like. This is our next technique or next, sorry, trait of a healthy church. We've talked about our passionate spirituality, empowering leaders. We talked about inspiring worship last week. And now this week and next, we want to talk about what does natural outreach look like? In this, in this study, it wasn't just evangelistic campaigns, but how do you naturally in your everyday life make this part of it? So here's Jesus in John chapter 4 in a great story that we all probably are familiar with, starting with verse 5. Jesus came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Okay, so remember That was an important symbol and religious place in Genesis. And Jesus, tired because he is a human from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well, and it's about noontime. Don't you love all the color and details? Because they are important to why things are happening like they are. 
Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. And he was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Now, why do they even bother to tell you that is because of something I'm going to tell you in a couple of minutes. It's like, what's Jesus doing there? Why is he talking to this woman? Why is he by himself? Well, the woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And Jesus, she said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Hundreds of years earlier, in case you didn't remember the story, so the northern kingdom, the ten northernmost tribes, back in, you know, around 712 B.C., um, Sennacherib of Assyria, not Babylon, but Assyria swept away the northern kingdom, took them off into exile, and the policy was to bring other peoples to settle the land. Now, they didn't take everyone away from of the northern tribes that were Jews. They just took the leaders and the people that, you know, would have abilities to to do things and create things and, and maybe workmen and artisans and such like that. And so then they would settle these new people in. And after a while, of course, they would look around and go, well, guess we might as well get to know them and marry them. And they marry and then they would intermarry. And so now you have, you know, other Middle East blood mixed in with Jewish blood you have other religion mixed in with the Jewish religion. And it became kind of half Jew, half worship of Yahweh, and half other religions, all mixed in together at the same time. And so this, of course, was a problem when the Jews came back in in 4-something B.C., 435 in, in there. And so... They're building up Jerusalem and this northern kingdom people, these Samaritans as they're now called, they are not welcomed. There shouldn't be this mixing together. And in fact, most Jews would go 35 miles out of their way. Now, they're not driving. They're not on bicycles. They're walking. And when you're going to, you know, like walk to Kettle Falls, but you can't go through Colville, right? Because you know what people like from Colville are like, right? And so you go way out of your way walking, you know, and 35 miles out of your way on foot, you know, that's a whole day or so or more um, out of your way. And so that would be something that would say, I really don't like Samaritans. And so they go out of their way 35 miles. But Jesus, he's going to go through Samaria. He's taking his disciples We don't hear if they argued with him, like, no, no, we can't go there. They just went. They went into a village to buy food. I know, I'm having a hard time keeping this thing from falling off my ear. And so uh, they passed through into this area, and there's Jesus sitting by uh, by himself because he wants to reach a rejected person from a rejected race. And so he sits alone at a religious shrine at a very significant spiritual location for the Samaritans. And he's waiting for this spiritual opportunity to unfold. And along comes this woman in the midday. It says it's noontime, the hottest part of the day. Is this the time you would go if it's, you know, like 90 some degrees? Would you go with big jugs of water and go to the well? Anybody would? I love the heat. You'd go in the morning, you'd go in the evening. So why in the world is this woman at the hottest part of the day, and there's no daylight savings time then, so it's really hot then, 
And so she's drawing her water and she's by herself because she is an immoral woman, we find out later in the story. And would you, what would you choose? Go sweat and carry or be ridiculed and humiliated every day you go to draw water in the evening or just go when no one else is there at the well. That's what she chooses to do. And guess who's waiting for her? Because he knows there's a spiritual opportunity. And he knows she's a very needy woman who's probably struggling. And so what is the first thing that Jesus does? He engages her in conversation. Now, there's a lot of cultural tension in this. So first, we already know she's a Samaritan. And Jews don't even have anything to do with Samaritans because the text has told us that. Second, she's a woman. And men in that culture, and still in the Middle East a lot, don't speak to women. But if you're a rabbi, you especially don't speak to women. And if you are a rabbi who especially doesn't speak to women, you especially and in no way would ever speak to a woman that you know is immoral. Because people would start talking and assume things and all kinds of other stuff would happen. So here's Jesus saying, I'm not bound by all of these human rules and traditions. So he asks her for something very simple, right? Could I have some water? And she's stunned. She's so surprised. Why is this man asking me for water? She knows all these cultural factors are going on. But when he does that, Jesus acknowledges her as a person. She's no longer invisible. A man, a Jewish man, a Jewish man who's a rabbi, is speaking to me. And she's stunned that someone notices her. And so she engages him in a, in a conversation. But G- Jesus knows that he needs to gain her attention. And he needs to touch her heart. And something as simple as a, could I have some water, asks her for something. He's indebted to her. And he's meeting her needs. We all have different needs. And we need different approaches for people's different needs. One style of outreach or evangelism doesn't work the same on every person. It needs to be adapted to cultivate the soils of different hearts, to plant a spiritual seed. I know many of you work in agriculture. Are all Is every part of your land, do you cultivate it exactly the same? You know, is, 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 is your sloping ground treated the same as your flat ground? And so, you know, you need to adapt your seed, your soil to put that seed in and planting different things in different places. And that's what outreach also does. We cultivate a relationship and we cultivate someone's heart to plant a spiritual seed by meeting the different needs that they have. And we listen in those conversations to pick up those needs because they may directly tell us or they may indirectly Tell us. And so on your outline, if you're following along, outreach meets needs. Outreach meets needs. And so I'm not saying this is the only approach. I'm just saying, but the the way that we, if relationship is 79% of how people have said they came to Jesus, then we should figure out what their needs are. So here are six common needs that people have. Okay, now these... I think are on your, on your outline. Number one is security. You might have to push the button more than once. Security. Am I safe 
and protected. Okay, so then that, that is like one of the basic needs. You know, people aren't going to feel all like, you know, let's explore our feelings. Let's talk about what's going on. It's like, if I don't feel safe and I don't feel secure, then a whole lot else doesn't matter. And having lived in Egypt where people didn't feel safe and secure, they gladly gave away their freedoms and their liberties and all the things that we hold dear just so they could have more security, a sense that there weren't going to be bombings and all of that kind of thing. So they would trade away freedom for security. So maybe you could offer to watch your neighbor's house while they're gone. They go on vacation, say, hey, can I keep an eye on your house for you? So you're building a little bit of relationship. You're helping meet a need. Number two is significance. What do I contribute? So maybe you could ask somebody for their opinion. I, like, you know, I have this problem at my house. How would you suggest that I reset this gate on my fence? Do you, you know, do you know how I could do that? Or, or maybe if you know, you know, they might want to help. Ask them, okay, can you give me a hand and, and show me how to do this and, and uh, I can learn from you? Because then they get a sense of significance that I am contributing something. Number three is worthiness. Do I matter? So maybe... Someone needs to just, you know, somebody could hear their story. We all have a story. Like one guy said, history is his story. And the rest of history is how my story and his story intertwine. So maybe in listening to someone's story, you're going to learn ways where his story is going to combine with their story. But first, you got to hear that story. And there are amazing things that God is doing in hidden ways to weave himself into their lives. And you start looking for those by listening to their story. Number four is belonging. Am I accepted in a group? So maybe you could invite your neighbors to your small group. Maybe you could invite them and to some, you know, you have a club that you go to or something else that, that you could say, hey, would you go with me and let's go try this, this group that get together and, and do this activity. Number five, affirmation. Am I recognized? So compliment your friend on something positive you observe. I got a neighbor across the street whose lawn is always perfect. The rest of us could never like dream to attain to such lovely lawn. Now I could sit and be jealous of it and go, why is his front yard so green all the time? Or I can say, wow, your, your yard is spectacular. It's a you know, it's a real asset to the neighborhood when people walk by it. It raises the level of, of or I can just be kind of jealous and envious and, and mad because my grass doesn't grow as good as his. Compliment them. Number six, support. Encourage them in life. If there is a, a sorrow that they're going through and you hear in their story or there's a loss and maybe you find out because the ambulance was there and took someone away, you know, go over there and find, hey, can I give you some food? Can I talk and uh, support you in any way? Let them talk about what's going on. So six needs that you see, and these, of course, aren't the only human needs, but they're six major categories. George Hunter III from Asbury Seminary says, if every man is like an island, then we must row around him or her until we find a suitable place to land. Each man or woman has a landing place where we can make contact and establish a beachhead for what God ultimately intends. Look for the opening in their life. Look for the ways that you can relate to them. 
Look for ways that you can meet needs. Now, I'm saying all of this stuff, and and all of us probably are in some way thinking, you know, I'm kind of busy. So cultivating relationships runs into a big barrier. It's called busyness. The tyranny of the urgent daily tasks and events pull us away from relationships. And so even saying hello may feel like a strain on your schedule, much less trying to meet someone's needs. And we think, I just, I can't add one other thing to my schedule. But I'd like to suggest you weave them into your schedule by incorporating what you're doing already and you look for these opportunities to meet some needs with people that God has already brought across your life path. And so do you love people enough to listen to their needs in the midst of your busyness? For someone like me, I'm always thinking, okay, there's this task and this and this. You got to switch off the task mode and, and in the middle of going to that thing, I'm thinking people. What, who out there would God bring across my path? in my already things I'm doing path. So what needs in your circle of influence can you help meet? Jesus showed us some ways with the woman at the well and the rest of the story you can see even more. Okay, our second passage today will be in two main passages and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we'll be in verse 19. Okay, now I'm going to confess now. I'm going to read to you from a version you may not have read before called The Message. This is Eugene Peterson, a pastor, very conservative one, who wrote a paraphrase to kind of try to capture some of the essence of Scripture. And I really like this, the way he did this passage. Sometimes this stuff's kind of odd, but I really like 1 Corinthians 9 and 19 through 21. And so here's what Eugene Peterson paraphrased in The Message. Even though I am free of the demands and expectations of everyone, I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people, religious, non-religious, meticulous moralists, loose-living immoralists, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ." As Paul invested time and energy into building various bridges with these various groups, he did not compromise his values. Outreach is not about getting other people to like you and approve of you. If you go into it thinking that you have to please people, then you're going to be in trouble. I don't have to take on someone else's way of life and lose my identity in Christ in outreach. I don't have to become an alcoholic to reach alcoholics. We can change our methods, which is the next point, but we never change the message that we're giving about Christ, that he is the son of God, that he died in our place to pay the penalty for our sins and that Jesus Christ was bodily resurrected and so we will one day be resurrected and he offers us the chance to have this relationship with God and we can't water down and change that message you know, and that's happened. I'm not going to tell you there aren't others going, you know, sin, no, we, we don't want to make people feel bad. Well, sorry, the Bible says that we're all sinners. doesn't mean we're all as horrible as we could be. It just means that we are all imperfect people who could never work our way to God, and we cannot change that message. So on your outline, number two, outreach does not dilute the message. Now think about that. What would diluting the message look like? for you. 
what would you consider to be diluting the message? And what would you say, in talking to someone to explain who God is, what would you say are your non-negotiable things that you're not going to go like, okay, well, you can believe different about that, and I might believe this. But there are certain things that we all have to have unity on, certain basic, orthodox, fundamental, established who God is, what God has done, where do we get our source of truth out of the Bible, is it authoritative, that we cannot compromise. So what are non-negotiables? For you. Okay, on in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22. But Paul says, I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God saved life. Now, we worry that if we adapt our styles or our methods or our programs, that we're kind of compromise our values. And here's the problem. We get confused on the second point about not diluting and compromising the message. We, we then think that everything else has to look just like that, that everything has to be exactly like what I think it should be. I'll give you an example. We were um, starting a, a, a second service, and so we had some different forms of music, and, and so we took, we had something, a pulpit much bigger than this one, and it was big and imposing, and you had to even step up into it. And You know, you've seen those in churches. They're fine. But we decided for this service, we would not have a pulpit. And there was definitely some backlash. Now, we put the pulpit back for the other service, but we didn't have it for the early service. And here, one woman kind of captured what many of them were saying. If people are going to come to church, they will just have to get used to Christian things. Okay? Now, you might say, well, but it's just a pulpit. A pulpit's not in the scripture, so it's not a salvation issue, is it, right? It's just a piece of furniture, but it stood for something for her. But for me, I don't, you know, putting a wooden kind of music stand that looked very nice, but it was much smaller, you feel more open to the audience. It was making methods and style statements. But what one's... What items would we add to that list? Remember, we have a non-compromise, non-negotiable list, but we also have some methods and some ways that we think things ought to be that we don't like to compromise. So outreach adapts methods. It adapts styles. It can adapt programs to reach people. Now, I'm not here to say we're going to change a whole bunch of things. We're going to change this and that, and then you're going to feel like this isn't your church anymore. I'm just challenging you to think about what things in your heart are non-negotiable. This is the message. We can't compromise and dilute it. And what things, if somebody was saying, you know, we're going to do something some years down the road that you say, it's a method, it's a program, it's a style. And it might not be my taste, but it's what someone else thinks. It's what someone else likes because those things can change. Those things can adapt. So what biases of yours might get in the way of reaching others? Now, maybe we might feel, and I was in a church in which the the church split and I came after that because they said, you know, if we have all these non-Christians coming into our church, we're going to have to put ashtrays outside outside the sanctuary. And we can't have that. And so they they got angry over methods and they split, which we Christians are so 
fond of seemingly to do. So what are your biases? Are you uncomfortable around people of a different age group? Are you uncomfortable around someone from a different economic situation or a different race? How about some of those who come and you know know they've made some bad life choices? And you go, well, they kind of deserve where they are. But, you know, I didn't really ever find Jesus saying, you know, I'd like to feed you, but you've really made some bad choices. So I'm, I'm just, you know, some of you 5,000, you need to go away because you made bad life choices and I can't feed you in this feeding. We didn't find that thing. And yet that's how some of us feel. Or maybe all of us at one time or another look at someone and go, I'm not going to help them. I'm not going to relate to them. And these are biases that can get in the way of reaching people. How much are we willing to adapt to reach the people of Stevens County? How much? What will we be willing to do? What would we be willing to give up? And again, don't panic. I don't have a list of things for you to give up. I'm an interim pastor. I'm not here to make a whole bunch of changes. You can get mad at the next guy for that because that'll be what he works through with you. But what are you willing to adapt in your methods, in your styles to reach people? Here's some characteristics also on your handouts because I I ran into it's less now, but not so long ago we thought, well, you know, an evangelism person, you know, if I do evangelism, the only thing that's really counts as evangelism is that person that closes the deal. That person that has them pray the prayer to ask Jesus into their heart. But I want you to notice some of these characteristics of 21st century evangelism and outreach. The context is relationship more than an event. Again, doesn't mean the event is wrong. Events reached 3% or 5% of the people. Number two, it takes contact with six to eight Christians before the average person commits. So you may be one of a network of people God has brought into their life. It's not all on your shoulders some, many times. It's a process in stages that might take months or years. It's laity-centered, which means not pastors, clergy, You guys are the laity, supposedly, in that scheme. So it isn't saying, like, let's bring the master fisherman with his special lures and and great fly fishing technique into the sanctuary, and he'll reach them. Well, sometimes, yes, that's true. But most often, it's you, because they trust you. They know you. So it's lay-centered rather than pastor-centered. It's tailored to each situation and person. There's not a one-size-fits-all, but the message is still the same. You don't tailor the message, you tailor the methods and the relationship. It's a dialogue more than a one-way presentation, which, again, doesn't mean you can't pull out a track and and go to Chautauqua and talk to someone and show them right there in simple, easy-to-understand steps, not saying that's wrong, but most often it's a dialogue of discussion. It takes time. It's a process. You're one of six to eight people. It addresses life concerns and needs, It's communicated with relevant language and methods, and spiritual truths are shared in response to questions. That's kind of part of the dialogue. Now, let me say this as we look at all of this. We often think then, you know, I have to make that person, if I do my techniques just right, they will become a Christian, and it's up to me to have the best techniques. But who is the real agent of change and conversion? 
You, me, or the Holy Spirit? We're just the Holy Spirit's tool. And he is the guide for the process. The Holy Spirit knows what each person needs for faith in Christ and what timing is best. So the timing may not be right. You may just feel like, just share this one little spiritual thing. And that's it. And so it's the job of the Holy Spirit to say, now, share this part. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to change the hearts using his supernatural power. It's not our job to force. It's not our job to force hearts to be open to spiritual things. So we need to listen to that small, still voice of the Holy Spirit. He will open up the opportunities. He'll open up the conversations if we just make ourselves available. Now, some have said, you know, and I can tell you there's a whole video series by um, Ray Comfort and Kurt Cameron. I couldn't remember the second guy. And, they, you know, I watched that and they go, you know, all this relational stuff, it takes too long. People are going to hell. They may go to hell before you get that, that all those months or years to reach them. This is the best way. Oh. And so what uh, we say is that it's the Holy Spirit and he might lead Kurt Cameron and Ray Comfort to a particular style and I have no criticisms of that but what works for me because it's not a wishy-washy method of evangelism. It's intentional, it's planned, it's committed and it's Holy Spirit driven. So God wants you to build relationships of trust in your circle of influence and he wants us to adjust our everyday path as we encounter people so instead of having lunch with christian friends on a particular time invite a neighbor or co-worker to go out to share lunch or share a brown bag together instead of rushing off to your next errand pause and chat with that unchurched person that neighbor that you know that you bumped into at the store And open your eyes, be aware of the opportunities that God puts in your path to build relationships. A final story. George Mueller from the 1800s described praying for his friends. So he says, in November 1844, I began praying for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and prayed for the other four. Five years elapsed, and then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. So we're 11, 12 and a half years into this. I thanked God for the three and went on praying for the other two. And then 36 years later, 36 years later, he wrote in in his diary that the other two were not believers still, but he wrote, but I hope in God, I pray on, 36 years, I pray on and look for the answer. They are not converted, but they will be. In 1897, 52 years after George Mueller began to pray, these two men were finally converted, but it was after George Mueller had died. But I'll bet God in heaven went over and said, George, guess what happened down on the earth time frame? Your prayers were answered. It took 52 years. So don't give up. Keep praying. 
Are you willing? And, and this is kind of a response part. On your outline, I'd like everybody, if you have one of those, to take it out. And at the very bottom on that outline page, there is a space for you to write the name of five persons in your circle of influence for, that you will pray for for five weeks. Now, you might need to spend some time praying this week for God to put five names on your mind, on your heart. So put those five names down. If you know them right now, if you go, I can think of five right now, write them down. If you need some time to write them, put this on your refrigerator right there or right in front of the sack of cookies, you know, so you remember it and you'll see it and say, okay, God, give me the five names you want me to take before you every day for the next five weeks. And then let's see what results that we get. Uh, to pray for them, pray for God, show me what needs that they have. Maybe you could even ask them, hey, um, how could I pray for you? Do you have something that, you know, most, most people that don't go to church that you think would never darken the door of the church, almost none of them will say, I hate being prayed for. I don't want anyone praying for me. They can be an atheist and they like to be prayed for. So you can ask them if you feel that would be okay or would be the timing of the Holy Spirit. Five names every day for five weeks. Show, at God, show me what needs that they have that I could meet. So take a minute, think about those names, and then put them down today or this week, and then we will talk some more next week. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have left us on earth to worship you, but you've also left us on earth to be the light, to show off who you are, your glory, your love, your grace.